This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We start today with the federal government gun ban, the buyback program for guns that are now illegal, and municipal handgun bans looming potentially in the cities of Vancouver and Surrey. My guest is Federal Public Safety Minister Bill Blair. He's the minister responsible on these files in the Justin Trudeau government, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Minister, thank you for coming on this morning. It's my pleasure, Mike. Good morning. Good morning to you. I appreciate it a lot. Minister, a lot of legal gun owners out there of these firearms in B.C. are not happy with this ban, of course, and I know you've heard from many of them. I want to play one clip of for you here of the Prime Minister and get your reaction. Here is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explaining the rationale for the ban here. These weapons were designed for one purpose and one purpose only, to kill the largest number of people in the shortest amount of time. All right, Minister, the weapons that the government's banning here are semi-automatic rifles for the most part. They're not fully automatic weapons. So is it really accurate to say that these weapons are designed to kill the most people possible in the shortest amount of time? I mean, those are not machine guns. Those are already banned. Yeah, no, to be really clear, Mike, these weapons are, are designed to kill people. They're tactical weapons. They're assault weapons. That's how they've been designed. That's how they're sold. Uh, they've been used in this country at, at Polytechnique, Ecole uh, Polytechnique in Nova Scotia. They've been used to kill police officers. They've been used in mass shootings, uh, you know, around the world at Christchurch, at, at, at Parkland, um, at Sandy Hook to kill a bunch of little kids. And, and, and frankly, in, in this country, uh, we, the, 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 the purpose of firearm ownership in Canada is for hunting and sports shooting and weapons that were designed not for either of those legitimate legal activities, but rather designed for people to kill other people have no place in Canadian society. It's exactly why we've prohibited them. I guess that my point, though, is the Prime Minister said they're designed to kill the most people possible in the shortest amount of time, and I'm just saying to you that's not true. Well, and, and, and I respectfully disagree, Mike, and, and certainly an automatic uh, weapon is even more efficient. But these, right. these are tactical weapons. If, if you look at these weapons and you look at their, their, their design, their, their providence, their, their history, and, and their marketing, it's, yeah. it's all about use in tactical situations, which is combat. And, and frankly, we don't arm ourselves in this country to protect ourselves from each other. The only lawful use of firearms in Canada is for hunting and sports shooting. Right. And, and these weapons were not designed for either of those purposes, and it's why we've prohibited them. They've been used in, in terrible tragedies in, in this country and around the world, in most sensible countries, by the way. New Zealand, Australia, the United Kingdom have already preceded us with, with prohibiting these self-same weapons. And, and so we believe that this is necessary and appropriate to, to keep Canadians safe. Okay. And it doesn't, by the way, affect hunters and farmers and sports shooters, because that's not what well, these weapons were designed for. Okay, well, I've heard from a lot of people who own the, the AR-15, which is probably the most notorious firearm we're talking about here, and they do use that for sports shooting. It's the only thing you can really use with, with an AR-15. But let me, let me play another clip from the Prime Minister here. Is Justin Trudeau on the AR-15. You don't need an AR-15 to bring down a deer. Okay, it's already illegal, though, to hunt a deer with an AR-15, right? So a lot of gun owners are saying this is a false argument. Your thoughts? Yeah, the, 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 well, it's certainly, it, it's, it's, it's not a hunting rifle. That's very clear, and the Prime Minister right. is absolutely correct in that regard. 
Uh, but but let's again be be very clear. The AR-15 is is a weapon. That it's, it is the weapon of choice at, at many on tragic mass murders that have taken place. And 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 listen, I'll acknowledge that. You know, I've heard from the gun lobby and their paid their paid lobbyists. These are apparently fun. But but I measure that against the priority of public safety, and I don't think there's any greater responsibility for any government in any order of government than keeping its citizens safe. And so you know, in Canada, we regulate all firearms. We restrict those ones. Which, which are very dangerous. And for guns yeah. that really have no place in hunting and sports shooting, which, which are simply too dangerous in civil society, we prohibit them. That's what exactly about what we've done. What about speaking of people who shoot guns for fun if they go to a gun range? What, what is the rationale for banning airsoft guns or air, air, basically pellet guns that people play with for, for fun? What is the point of banning those? Yeah, thanks, Mike. It's a, it's a really important question. We're not talking about banning BB guns, pellet guns, or paint guns. What we are, in fact, doing is listening to the police. And the police for over 20 years have been urging governments to prohibit um, replicas, which exactly uh, replicate um, very dangerous weapons. They're completely undiscernible from the real thing. And, and, and what the police have urged governments to do and what we've listened to is banning those weapons that, that are exact replicas of highly dangerous weapons. Because, in, and, and in fact, those, those, those devices are used in crime. They, you know, they cause serious injury. Um, they are deeply concerning to the police. I spoke to this recently to the police, for example, in, in uh, Winnipeg, who said last year they, served, they seized 215 replica firearms used in crime. The police have urged us to, to prohibit those weapons. We've listened to them because we, we understand their point of, of their dangerousness. And, and there's no reason why people can't have BB guns, pellet guns, or paintball guns, but only okay. that they cannot exactly replicate dangerous firearms why not go come down harder on illegal weapons that are largely smuggled into the country which appears to be the vast majority of the type of weapons that are used for illegal activity in canada i want to play this very short clip here for you on this point from uh, the opposition leader his conservative leader aaron o'toole as much as 80 to 90 percent of the firearms used in illegal activities mainly in large cities come from illegal smuggling from the United States. Okay, is he correct on that, Minister, that 80, we're talking a very, very large majority of the gun crime in Canada is done with weapons smuggled across the border? Is that right? Well, certainly smuggled across the border is a such significant source of that. But I would point out yeah. to Mr. O'Toole that he actually voted to cut thousands of officers from both the RCMP and the Border Services. When we tried to restore those officers, he voted against that. And I was also point out to them that in Bill C-21, we, we acknowledge there are three ways in which criminals get guns. In some places of the country, they're smuggled across the border. In others, they're stolen from lawful gun owners or gun stores. And they're also being illegally diverted by people who buy them legally and then sell them illegally. And we have measures in Bill C-21 that take, yeah. take very specific aim at all of those areas. And in fact, with respect to smuggling across guns, we're increasing the maximum penalty for those offenses, giving the police and the border service officers access to new right. tools, resources, and data to be more effective. And we're, we're also investing a lot of money in them. I hope that this time, for the first time, the Conservatives, instead of cutting those law enforcement resources, will actually help support the but, work that is necessary and important at the border. But instead of spending hundreds of millions of dollars on a buyback program from law abiding gun owners in Canada, why not use that money for an even tougher crackdown at the border? I mean, if the gun crime in Canada is overwhelmingly from smuggled guns from the United States, isn't that the problem? Shouldn't that be the priority? Not taking away weapons from, from legal gun owners who are not a problem. 
you know, no, we're not I'm not talking about legal gun owners being a problem. I'm talking about certain guns being a problem. Yeah, but I'm saying and, and like crack down at the border Mike, more more Mike, aggressively. But Mike, to be really clear, look at look at what's actually in Bill C twenty one. There are there are very strong new restrictions and prohibitions against those weapons that we have prohibited that render them legally unusable in this country. But we're also in, we've invested and we continue to work. You know, I, I had a meeting with my counterpart and uh, the, it, members of the White House just earlier this week, and we're reestablishing uh, an inter-border uh, crime forum, and also we're setting up a new task force to work on both sides of the border. Now, I used to do this work as a police officer and as a police chief, Mike, and, and, and I, I, I know that the investigations that the police are able to do, working with our border officials on both sides, to keep guns from being smuggled in this country is important. It's why we're investing those those resources. Okay. And and the, and the only point of a, a buyback is for the people that bought these guns legally, we are making it legally prohibited to use them in any way. And in fairness to those individuals, if they choose to, to, to not continue to keep a firearm that cannot be used but choose right. to surrender it, then we'll to treat them fairly. We'll offer them a, a, a fair um, buyback option that will be available to them. But the purpose, the purpose here is, 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 is not in any way to punish those, those firearm owners. We're trying to be fair to them, but we're also removing guns that have, and I think the overwhelming let, majority of Canadians agree, they have no place in our society. Speaking to Public Safety Minister Bill Blair, Minister, let me ask you about the municipal handgun ban, and we've already heard from the mayors of Vancouver and Surrey that they're uh, enthusiastic about a handgun ban in our two largest cities here in British Columbia. Let me play this for you. This is uh, Tom Stamatakis, uh, the president of the Canadian Police Association. I know you're very familiar with him. Here he is. He's asked about the handgun ban on our Linda Steele show here, and here's what he said. If they're going to create a bylaw and actually want to try and enforce something, I mean, the resource implications could be massive. I mean, how do you um, enforce a bylaw and, and what kind of provisions would a bylaw like that contain with respect to ensuring that people are complying? Okay, that's the uh, represents police officers in Canada expressing concern about how this is going to be enforced. So how would this work? Like, let's say they ban you ban handguns in Vancouver, you ban handguns in Surrey. Would you have to leave town? Like, how would it be enforced if you just if you take a gun to another municipality? How is that going to work? No, Mike, and quite frankly, nobody has to leave town. That's just silly. I got a lot of time. Well, how's it going to work, though? And he and I, he and I talk about these issues a lot. Yeah. And so, certainly, let you know how it works. We we are implementing really strong restrictions on 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 handguns in this country that apply in every place, right across the country. New restrictions on their storage, new re- restrictions on on their sale and resale. Um, uh, important restrictions that are in place to keep guns out of the hands of criminals. And we've also said that we are prepared to work with municipalities that want to do more. If, for example, a municipality wanted to pass a bylaw on where a firearm could be stored in their their jurisdiction, just as an example, we will make it a condition of the federal license to to own and possess that restricted weapon that they also be in compliance with, with the local municipal bylaws. And, and that, that, that's a very straightforward thing and, frankly, a very easy thing for, for the police of jurisdiction to enforce right. because it will be part of the federal legislation that, that will require compliance with the local municipal regulation. Right. We're also working with the provinces and territories. I've had a lot of discussion with your, the, your provincial government on this. I think everybody understands how important it is to keep their communities safe. And, yeah. and, and so it's important also to remember, Mike, Firearm ownership in this country is not a right, as it is in the United States. It's a privilege, and it's a privilege predicated on every firearm owner following all the rules, regulations, and restrictions that are put in place for their safe use. Minister, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it a lot. 
Yeah, of course, Mike. You have a very good day, my friend. All right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, you heard my conversation there with the federal public safety minister. We got lots of calls. Let me quickly get the take uh, reaction from Rod Giltakin now, CEO, Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Rod, I know you were listening to that interview. Anything jump out at you there? Uh, well, a couple of things. I'll try to make it as quick as I can. The first thing is something that's very common with Mr. Blair. He says, we aren't banning teleguns while they ban them. He said, no, that's the airsoft, the airsoft guns that they're banning, right? He says because they're replica weapons. Well, uh, <laughs> but that, that criteria is entirely subjective. How, how far away from, like, do they all have to look like space guns? And what, what you know, how do you define space guns? And the, so basically everyone that's playing airsoft right now, you're done. All the businesses that yeah. sell that stuff, you're done. Manufacturers aren't going to change the way that they're manufacturing these guns to please a small market like Canada. So he says, we're not banning airsoft. We're not doing that stuff while well, he does. He says, we're not banning hunting and sports shooting guns while well, he does. And it's doublespeak. And I'll, let me just say this one more thing, Mike. Yeah. If you have to um, use doublespeak, if you have to lie or sidestep around your points, you're probably not doing the right thing. And I think that's what people need to understand. Okay, let's take some phone calls here. Adrian on the line in Langley. Hi. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hi. Morning, Rob. Um, Wanted to say you guys are doing a great job. Thank you very much for all your support as gun owners. Um, I find it infuriating when I hear Bill Blair coming out the way he does. He's using propaganda by, you know, uh, all the children that are getting shot up. It's not all the children that are getting shot up. Yes, there's, there's things that do happen out there, but it's not by legal gun owners. And he's not focusing on the problem at hand. It's easier to focus on us people who are legal law-abiding citizens okay, Rod rather Gil- than actually taking the bull by the horns. Rod Giltaka, your thoughts? Well, there have been, and, and like, because I have to be honest on both sides of the argument. There have been licensed gun owners that have committed multiple victim public shootings in Canada. It's extremely rare. But then, well, you know, it's funny because I got into a Twitter fight with somebody on this, and I said, listen, if somebody is smart enough to go through the PAL or to legally purchase a firearm, I assure you, if you keep the firearms away from them, they're smart enough to spend $40 and rent a van like happened in Toronto. So it's really about the, a real conversation about public safety. Licensed gun owners do not represent a disproportionate risk to public safety. And I actually had Bill Blair admit that to my face on camera. And a lot of people know about okay. that video. Okay. Speaking of Toronto, Thomas on the line calling from Toronto. Hi. Hello. How are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Uh, just by way of background, uh, I was in the infantry for a number of years. I am a police officer in Toronto. I'm also an armor. I was certified as an armor by Colt Canada. And I'm just simply here to speak about some of the hypocrisy that uh, Mr. Bill Blair was repeating to the public. I would call it propaganda. Namely, first, when Trudeau said that these firearms were designed for one purpose and one purpose only to kill large people in the smallest amount of time, yeah. I'm paraphrasing, yeah. that's not accurate. Right. I I put that to him, you know, because it sounds like when he says that, it sounds like he's banning machine guns or something, which are which are already illegal. Anyway, go ahead. Yes. But just to that point, what I was going to say is having disassembled and worked on both military, the very police firearms that are in the possession of police officers from coast to coast. I can tell you for a fact that the prohibited firearms, which were described as such by the prime minister and which have been echoed by Mr. Bill Blair, are the exact same firearms in the safes of Canadians and in the hands of police officers. So how can they both be a weapon designed to kill the largest amount of people in the shortest amount of time 
in the hands of civilians and for police officers, as we literally train at our police college, they are taught as tools for self-defense. They're called law enforcement carbines with our particular force. And with the RCMP, they are called law enforcement patrol carbines. There's a huge disconnect. Okay, Thomas, thanks thanks for calling in. Um, I appreciate we're up against the clock, but I do appreciate you calling in from Toronto. Rod Giltaka, uh, we we could probably fill a whole show talking about this stuff, but thank you for coming on. We'll have you back. It's my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about some of the anti-mask mayhem we've seen in some stores and businesses around Metro Vancouver in the last couple of days. Uh, we have seen uh, mask, anti-mask confrontations at Canadian Tire, at restaurants, at a camera store, also on BC Ferries. Have a listen to this. This is Constable Gary O'Brien from the Nanaimo RCMP on some people breaking the mask rules on a ferry. People have to understand, you can't threaten a police officer when he's there simply to do his job. They could have been looking at a serious criminal code offense of uttering threats. The officers elected not to, and they pursued the the COVID-19 protocol fines. They are quite apologetic at the end of the evening, of course, when they're sober. Nevertheless, uh, they, uh, they got quite a break. Okay, sounds like maybe there are some intoxicants going on there, too. Of course, we had a wild confrontation the other day at the Canadian Tire. Have a listen to this one. Okay, it was a guy who was unhappy with the mask mandate there, and he got uh, taken down by some uh, staff. Uh, police attended that one, too. Let's check in with Mike Farnworth now, BC's Minister of Public Safety. He's the Solicitor General. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Minister, thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Okay, what goes through your mind, Minister, when you see these anti-sort of mass confrontations in stores? I think um, the same thing goes through most people is how can you be so, how can these people be so ignorant? How can they be so stupid? And how can they, how on earth do they think that, that being abusive to, uh, to staff who are doing their job, to police officers who are doing their job, um, is, is even remotely acceptable? Because it's not. Um, you know, the mask mandate is there to protect people's health, to help us deal with this COVID pandemic. Uh, and so this idea that somehow they think that, they could, that they're making a point of doing something is just ridiculous. Okay. Do you think this is getting worse? We seem to have had a rash of these type of incidents in the last few days. What's your sense of it? I think we are seeing uh, a bit of an uptick uh, because I know that uh, police uh, and uh, uh, other officials have been uh, handing out more tickets. Uh, we've seen uh, this past week, I think, almost 150 uh, tickets issued. Um, I think the total now is around 1,215, and 185 are for the uh, the serious uh, the serious uh, $2,300 fine. So I think we have seen a bit more. I think it's a combination of of uh, you know these people who just don't get the message, um, and that you know, and and that they don't want to. They don't feel they have to wear them out. Yeah. The reality is, is they do. Yeah, do you think a tougher crackdown is in order? Some people have looked at the fines and say, well, $230 fine, is it enough of a deterrent? But your thoughts? Well, um, we are looking at if we can raise the fines. I mean, one of the issues that we've always had to deal with is what will stand up in court. We have realigned, realigned the, the fines uh, so they, fought, they come under the uh, Emergency Program Act. And what that, will, what that does is it allows uh, police, depending on the situation, uh, they can uh, uh, recommend uh, an additional prosecution, which was, can result in a $10,000 fine or uh, wow. one year in jail. Um, at the same time, um, with my ministry... Oh, 
Okay. With a mask fine, for example. Okay, Minister, I just you broke up just a little bit. I know you're traveling in a vehicle here right now. I know you're not driving, though. Um, yeah. So let, let me ask you about uh, when you see some of these confrontations, it just seems like it's invariably or, or very often it's, it's a young person who is just doing their job likely earning minimum wage in, in a retail job and and they've got to deal with this kind of baloney like what, what kind of what goes through your mind in that does that make you angry i mean what do you feel when you see that uh, it makes you very angry it makes you very angry because here's you know a young person or any person they're doing their job you know they're doing their job in many cases it's about providing customer service and helping people in the store and um and 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 they shouldn't have to deal with this at all i mean it's just Okay, we're having trouble. We're having some trouble maintaining some contact there with you, Minister. But let me try another another question for you. Uh, is there? Do you think there's any confusion around the rules out there, especially as it relates to people who have a medical exemption uh, to wear to not wear a mask? I'm taking a look right now at the BC Human Rights Commission website. And it says, if a person claims a mask exemption, you should take them at their word. Proof should not be required. Business owners cannot be fined for allowing people to enter without a mask. Is is all of that consistent with your understanding of the policy? Like, if you have a medical exemption, if you can't wear a mask for a medical reason, a health reason, that you should you can go into a, one of these businesses without wearing a mask, and you don't have to show proof. Is that correct? There. There is the medical exemption, and the reality is that this, from what we have seen, is that most people who have that situation are not going out uh, into stores to begin with. Many of them are shopping online, and when you see the uh, the videos that uh, have taken place of these individuals, um, this is not about a medical exemption whatsoever. This is about them thinking the rules don't apply to them. Uh, and in case after case, when you see it, um, you know, there's a cell phone usually involved, they're the ones who are a lot of times taking it, it's being videotaped, it's they're being aggressive and confrontational. It is deliberate and they know what they're doing. Minister, you're, you're responsible for police services in the province. Let me ask you about an issue that has got some members of the RCMP upset in British Columbia here in the, in the last of 20, couple of days. And that is some comments made by Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. She was testifying at a special committee on reforming the Police Act. And she was commenting on the overdose crisis, the crisis we have with homelessness and mentally ill people on the streets. She made some critical comments about the RCMP, maybe that the RCMP culture doesn't allow for police officers and Mounties to do effectively to outreach for people who are suffering on, on the streets as opposed to a municipal police officer. Let me play the, the, uh, the clip here for you that's got some RCMP officers upset. This is Dr. Bonnie Henry. It was against the RCMP policy for them to provide life-saving medication to somebody who was overdosing and dying in front of them. Okay, we have a, a lot of pushback from the RCMP. The president of the National Police Force, Brian Sove, in particular, very upset on behalf of the RCMP about these comments. But your thoughts? Well, what I do know is that uh, Dr. Henry uh, is going to be addressing uh, this issue uh, later this afternoon. Uh, and I think she will be uh, putting it in the context in which she was attempting or the, in which she was making her remarks. And so I think it's uh, best that I let her 
um, uh, do that, and she's indicated that she will be doing that publicly later this afternoon. Okay, what are your personal thoughts on it from your perspective? Do you have confidence in the RCMP officers when they're dealing with people who are homeless, mentally ill on the streets, people who have suffered a drug overdose? Do you believe the RCMP are doing an effective job? I think the, the police are doing a terrific job, whether they're RCMP, uh, RCMP, our municipal police, uh, in very uh, different, uh, in very difficult circumstances often. Um, I have full confidence in the police, just as I have full confidence uh, in our provincial health officer. And as I said, she is going to be addressing the, uh, the issue uh, later on this afternoon. Minister, thank you for your time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Okay, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about that grade 12 student at uh, high school student in Kamloops who got sent home this week for wearing a, a, for a dress code violation. Wow, everybody is talking about this story. A BC dad and his daughter both speaking out about this. Her name is Karis Wilson. She is a grade 12 student at Norcam Senior Secondary School in Kamloops. She went to school uh, on Tuesday wearing a black dress over top of a, a long sleeve white turtleneck. The dress went down to her knees, and she was sent home from school for wearing an inappropriate outfit. Now, if you've not seen this, uh, the, the clothing that she was wearing, and a lot of people have seen this story, I encourage you to give me a follow on Twitter, because I, I just posted it there for you just now. So check it out. And get set to call me on the open line. Tell me what you think about this. At Mike Smith News is where you'll find it, okay? So take a look at the photo of, of what this, uh, this student was wearing and tell me what you think. At Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter John Hua. After school, they gathered and chanted in support of how a fellow student chose to dress. All because Karis Wilson's teachers ruled this outfit was too risque. I put the turtleneck underneath and then I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think that they would have anything to say about it. Instead, the 17-year-old Kamloops student says she was sent home Monday from Norcam Senior Secondary in tears. I felt empty and I felt sad and I felt like an object. A dress with lace accent she's worn in public many times before supposedly reminded both a female teacher and male teaching student too much of lingerie. I know conservative clothing when I see it, and I know that my outfit was not showing anything. Not to wear clothing that is distracting to teaching or learning. Wilson's father, Christopher, calling out the school's dress code on social media. That might make them think sexual thoughts about you, and that's not okay, so you need to change. In a statement, the Kamloops-Thompson School District writes, we are also concerned about these allegations and are treating them seriously. The incident is currently under review. We will not comment on the incident specifically. Someone, just because they don't like your outfit, should not be able to send you home and affect your education just because they are sexualizing you. Many say they understand the need for a dress code, but what's deemed as distracting needs to be addressed. Women are always taught to cover up whereas men should be taught to control themselves and control their thoughts. Wilson says it doesn't matter if she wears this dress or her usual cotton sweats. It will take a while for her to feel comfortable in the classroom again. 
John Hua, Global News. Okay, really good job in that story there by John Hua. You had it all covered there. And this is fascinating. Uh, this uh, 12, grade 12 student, Karis Wilson. And you saw in that, you heard in that report how a lot of her fellow students totally supported her. They walked out of class and were protesting outside of that high school in Kamloops. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Anita Roberts, former Canadian representative to the UN on violence against women. She is the founder of Safe Teen International. She's a noted author and speaker. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi, nice to be here. It's great to have you here. What do you think of this story and what she was wearing at school? Do you think it was inappropriate or your thoughts? Well, it might sound strange, but um, I'm grateful that this incident has happened because it has reawakened the conversation. So many issues come up, like, you know, the hashtag Me Too, and then they go back to sleep. Well, this issue has been going on for decades it was really up in the 90s. I don't know if you remember. I don't know. Yeah, I'm <laughs> Over old. Crop I'm tops. old. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> crop tops, right? Yeah, and yeah. that whole midriff showing. And right. now it's up again. So this is a good thing because then we get to have the conversation. Yeah, no, it, so. it is an, a good conversation to have. I mean, when I'm when I'm looking at uh, what this uh, this young girl was wearing, I mean, okay, she's wearing a, a black dress, which, which my wife informed me is known as a slip dress. Um, but she's got it over a long sleeve white turtleneck underneath. And I I looked at it and I thought, you got to be kidding me. This is what she was sent home for. Like, I didn't think it was inappropriate at all, but your thoughts. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same thoughts. But you know, this is simply an extension of how society places the blame on females. I mean, women are told that they must police themselves, what they wear, how much they drink, where they go to ward off potential harm. And you know, the harm we're speaking of inspiring the apparently insatiable and uncontrollable lust of males. <laughs> and if a woman does come to harm, the first thing we ask is, what was she wearing? Yeah, yeah. So that's what this is underneath, you know, the deeper conversation, that's what this is about. Right. I mean, there's literally no skin showing. She's wearing a yeah. turtleneck. And you know what's interesting, too, and, you know, uh, having been working with youth for more than 40 years and being sort of having my finger on the pulse there, you know, the word slip is an archaic word to today, today's teenagers. Like, it, does, it doesn't mean lingerie. It's not the same thing. So, but, you know, but that's not the point. The point really isn't the outfit. Right. Do you think? Right. What, what is the point? What would you okay, say? Okay, the point, well, I would say that the point is that um, we're not ma- holding males accountable for, we're blaming the females, we're not holding males accountable for their own thoughts and actions. And because it, our society sexualizes girls and, and women as much as it does, um, we kind of let men off the hook like they can't help themselves. That's, the, that's the, the thing. Oh, well, men can't help themselves, so women have to dress differently instead of educating the men and, um, and making them accountable for where they go in their heads with it. Right. And it's just, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and that don't, was... And don't that... You think, and I think that was that was made evident that was made evident by the school too, by the way, because the explanation that was was given to this student and her, and her father was that uh, her clothing apparently made a teacher and a male student teacher uncomfortable, right? right. So, and if you yeah. take a look at the actual wording of the of the dress code, uh, you heard the father in that story said the dress code says you're not allowed to wear clothing that is distracted. Uh, that is distracting from teaching or learning, distracting, uh, which is a pretty vague term. But what do you think of that dr- the wording of that dress code? Well, that, that, the word distracting really jumps out at me because yeah. 
it, and that is the core of this, really. I mean, face it, dress codes are for, for girls and, and women. Dress, dress, yeah. dress codes are for females. Now, boys can wear skin-tight tees, tank tops, tight pants, low-rider jeans, you know, but apparently female teachers and gay male teachers can control themselves. They don't seem to be having an issue. So what we're really seeing is heterosexual men can't control their sexual urges. Now, don't you think as a man, Mike, don't you think yeah. that's a little bit insulting to men? I, of course, of course I do. I, I think this whole thing is ridiculous. Like I've got, I got two boys at home. Okay. And I got one, one boy, my younger son is in high school. My other son just graduated. And we were talking about this in our home last night. And my oldest son, who is uh, 18, um, he was curious about this, so he, he looked. I, he looked at the photo of, the, of this uh, grade twelve student and what she was wearing. And his react, his reaction was funny. He said, "He said that's it, that's <laughs> it." He said she should sue the school district. And uh, the other yeah. thing he said to me was, he said, "Dad, like I've seen way more revealing outfits at school than this. Like, oh, come totally. on, yeah, absolutely, yeah." yeah. Yeah, and yet, and yet, again, there's so much focus on the outfit. I mean, I yeah. guess I have to ask myself, like, what kind of man would look at a 12 to 18-year-old girl, an adult right. man, and be so distracted, presumably by his fantasies, that he can't teach? If this were actually <laughs> true, there wouldn't be a yeah. male yoga teacher in the world or swim coach or any kind of sports coach for, for girls and women. I mean, it's not true that men can't control themselves, but this is the storyline yeah. of it, right? Right. Do you think, though, I mean, that... Do you, do you think though that that there is a line though that that has to be drawn? Like, should there be a, a dress code? Like, is there is there a point where uh, clothing worn at school does cross the line and is inappropriate? It, that's a very interesting question to yeah. me because you know, in my opinion, a girl should be able to walk into a school naked and still be safe. And and wow. can I just point out again, like the issue here is. Oh, gosh, how do I say this? Like, um, okay, so when we look at our 12-year-old niece or daughter or student, and she's wearing something tight or low-cut, we cringe, that word cringe, right? You cringe. Why? Part of it may be some kind of internalized shame from our own conditioning, but mostly it's because we fear for her safety. And why? It seems we do believe that men can't control themselves. You see, that's what the issue is. So it, should there be a dress code? I mean, whatever girls are, I mean, this can be really hot. There's some climates that are so hot, like might have a, a family that live in, live in Australia. What those girls wear to school is like the coolest clothes that they can find. I think it's more accepted right. because it, it is so hot. But it, it, it really is about the attitudes. It's about educating our boys um, and our men about um this idea and and educating women too because it was a female teacher who also well felt well i'm glad i'm glad you mentioned that because i just wanted to make the stress that point is that uh apparently the one of the teachers who complained here or was not comfortable was a, a woman a, a female teacher yeah. right? right so i mean do you think that do you think that it's not only like men's attitudes but you know some women's attitudes on this need to be updated Yes, and, because, and you know what, that, it's a slut-shaming that all girls and women have been subject to for so, for so many decades, you know, forever. So it, it, when a woman looks at the, the 12-year-old niece or daughter or student wearing these clothing, she can have that cringe reaction, and that's the internalized shame from her own conditioning. So that's, you know, that, that's what part of it is. Um, but I also, there's this thing that women can do when they're with men where they say, oh, that must be really distracting for him. And then she's wow. protecting him in some way because she's projecting on him that he you know what i haven't heard in this whole thing i haven't heard that man's voice where's his voice 
He's an adult. Where's his voice in this whole story? Like, the, the did student, he feel distracted? Right. This, you mean the student teacher? Who, yeah. Who was, yeah. I, we have not heard from, from him. You're Don't right. you think that's interesting? Absolutely. Because I do want to know. Like, I really want to know. Did you feel distracted by her outfit? Because how could you? My God, she's completely covered up. I mean, she could have been, she may as well have been wearing a burqa. There's no skin showing there. Okay. Anita, thank you for your time on this one today. Oh, you're very welcome. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Thanks a lot. All right, welcome back to the show. Lots of focus this week on Canada's relations with China, especially China's human rights record, how China treats its neighbors. Of course, China's still detaining the two Michaels, two Canadian citizens still detained in China. Just this week, the House of Commons voted to recognize China's treatment of its Uyghur Muslim population as genocide. And now China in the headlines for another reason. Our show contributor, John Jang, now breaks down what's happening in the South China Sea. John. Hey, good morning, Mike. Tensions continue to escalate in the South China Sea as some of the world's major players are stepping up their military presence in that area in a direct response to Chinese aggression. But it's a complicated matter that requires careful dissecting. So we're now joined by Professor Paul Evans of the UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the HSBC Chair in Asian Research. Professor, give us the background of what's been happening in the South China Sea and why it's now an area of interest. I think that it's it's best to think about the South China Sea as a zone of contestation. There are several kinds of conflicts playing out in that very important bit of water. Uh, that um, uh, there's there's really three parts of that contest. One of them is about territory, sovereignty, uh, claims for um, uh, mineral resources. Um, and there's there's five principal claimant countries involved in that, uh, and there are they are uh, building up uh, reefs, uh, defending uh, their ground, and there is no resolution in sight. Uh, the second dimension of it is the U.S.-China conflict, and that is about naval superiority in the in the South China Sea, whether it's superiority, dominance, or uh, or, or even the balance of military power in the region. This is a, is a major unending issue between China and the United States, and China uh, is the one with the rising capabilities. This is going to be the year that uh, the Chinese Navy is larger than the American Navy uh, on, a, on, a, on a global scale. And the third part of the South China Sea that we often uh, we miss, and, and Canadians uh, should be attenuated towards is the matter of the maritime resources, the fish stocks, the coral reefs. This is a place that produces the protein for more than a billion people, and the fish stocks are declining dramatically, overfishing and other things. And there, China is the big player um, for better. Some of the things they're putting in place on fishing restrictions, but for worse. Uh, their coral reef devastations are enormous. So I put it as a as a as a sea, a troubled sea. 
I'm glad we have you here today to walk us through the situation because at first glance, it feels like an all-out war is about to break out. Are there any fears that such a thing could possibly happen? Well, it is a, it is a complex location, uh, and there are economic uh, issues in play. There's um, uh, ecological issues in play, and there are military balance issues. I don't think anyone underestimates the chance of a military clash in the South China Sea. Um, the uh, number of uh, vessels that are operating there, principally, principally Chinese and American, um, they're having incidents uh, where they're pushing up against each other. The risk factor is increasing in the region uh, from a military perspective, but it is not increasing in the direction of uh, we're on the precipice of a intentional war. Uh, the, the risks are a little bit more subtle, but not, but, but, not, but not small. Part of what makes the South China Sea such an important story is the role that it plays as a vital trade route. What are the implications on the global economy if this situation deteriorates? Yeah, I mean, the, the South China Sea, it, perhaps its most important strategic uh, dimension is that it is a, is a passageway for trade. Uh, and something like 75% of Asia's trade passes in one direction or another uh, through the South China Sea. So it is vital to Asian economies, but also to the global economy. Uh, materials that go from China to Europe go through the South China Sea. Um, so it's of huge commercial importance. Uh, and the situation uh, of that is uh, the, the background is that it's in everyone's interest to keep freedom of, uh, uh, of uh, tra transportation, freedom of navigation going. Uh, and the Chinese, the Americans, all of the claimant countries, nobody wants to see this shut down or even if there were some kind of military conflict, if that, if that sea is closed or too dangerous, the insurance rates go up too high for ships through there, it would have a huge impact on the global economy. And Professor, what are your thoughts on how China has emerged on the global stage as a superpower to rival the United States? There are these moments of power shift when a great power emerges. This is not to say China is going to be greater than the United States, but there are now two suns in the sky. And how we all adjust to that, how we see things play out, demands intelligence, it demands deep understanding, uh, and it demands a uh, uh, contacts with both China and the United States. And Canada may be positioned there to, to maybe uh, play a, a positive role. But at this moment, it's the, it's the fear and our worries that dominate our views of China. He is Professor Paul Evans of the UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs and the HSBC Chair in Asian Research. Thank you so much for your time and expertise today. All right, that's our own John Jang there in conversation with Paul Evans. And John joins me now. John, fascinating interview there. And it's almost like the South China Sea is this very high-stakes chessboard there with uh, a lot of maneuvers going on. That was, that was fascinating. Uh, what is uh, Canada's role here, or Canada's interest in this situation right now? 
Yeah, so the South China Sea doesn't directly relate to Canadian trade and imports exports because the East China Sea, which travels just under Japan, that's the trade route that China would use in trades with the port of Vancouver, for example. However, as the professor was sort of explaining, because of the relationship that Canada plays sort of wedged between the United States being its direct partner to the South and uh, wanting to maintain global economic relations with China, Canada could find itself either playing the, that vital peacekeeping role or maybe helping stack the dominoes on one side or the other. So it'll be a fascinating relationship here. Okay, we continue to follow closely. Thank you, John. You got it. Thank you, Mike. Uh, all right, that's John Jang. He's a contributor here on the show. What did you think of that interview? Phone me on the buzz line. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the opioid addiction crisis in British Columbia now. The situation is dire, especially with the dangerous drug supply on the streets with deadly fentanyl lacing a lot of street drugs. The death toll here is shocking. Last year, more than 1,700 deaths in British Columbia from illicit drug overdoses. Wow, this is a shocking number. Okay, what do we do about it now? Now, we've heard the calls for a safe drug supply give people safe drugs to prevent the overdose deaths we've heard the calls for expansions of supervised injection sites but what about treatment and recovery for drug addicts now check this out new angus reed poll says 88 percent of canadians are in favor of mandatory addiction treatment mandatory be compulsory to receive addiction treatment 88 percent of canadians uh, support that proposition. Let's talk about it now with my guest, Guy Felicella. He's a harm reduction advocate. He overcame drug addiction in his own life. I'm very pleased to welcome back, welcome him back to the show. Guy, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's great to talk to you again. Can you remind the listeners briefly, Guy, of your uh, of your life experience? I mean, it's kind of an unfair question for you to 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 outline that really briefly. But t- tell me briefly about how you were addicted to drugs and you were homeless and and you overcame it. Can you tell us briefly that story? Yeah, you know, I, I struggled for three decades with, um, you know, substances and, and you know, uh, over two decades of it spent in the downtown east side of Vancouver where I was homeless and literally consumed in a in a two-block radius and, you know, multiple uh, attempts at rehab and, and treatment facilities uh, throughout those years as well and um, lots of incarceration and, you know, criminalization for using substances and, um, you know, brought back to life six times, suffered immensely health conditions, five osteomyelitis, bone infections, one where I had to learn how to walk again. I mean, you know, just a astronomical uh, odds against me of surviving, uh, you know, bad drug policies that existed in our society for decades. And in uh, 2013, February 18th, it was my last overdose at, uh, insight and um and just that uh those many moments of people um offering hope and uh, other options you know i i took advantage i left the downtown east side with one set of clothes on my back and a and a pair of sandals and and uh, went to uh an outpatient program where i got into uh trauma therapy and started to really discover uh the root causes of my substance use uh, and the trauma that I endured throughout my life and, and, and really started the, the life that I have today. 
Okay, I congratulate you for, for that amazing uh, comeback story. That's awesome, Guy, and you've been a great inspiration to many other people. Um, so let's talk about uh, treatment and, and recovery here. So what do you think about this poll that says 88% of Canadians favor the idea of mandatory treatment? Your thoughts? Well, I, I mean, it, it, it doesn't surprise me, but I think when people hear the word treatment, they don't don't really understand like what that means like you if you think you can go into treatment for four months into rehab and you know yeah you, you may be successful for four months but what happens afterwards what about people that don't have any housing or people who struggle with poverty and then also too it's a, a chronic relapsing condition um you, you know what mandatory treatment is really just another form of criminalization and it fosters distrust in the system um by leaving charges and sentencing uh, to the discretion of police or police officers' courts, uh, we continue to treat a health issue as a criminal one, especially in the absence of evidence-based system care uh, to refer individuals into. And and those who do support mandatory treatment don't understand what the treatment system looks like right now. It's like uh, the system is ineffective because someone may go through treatment and then be released with zero supports, no employment, no housing, no ongoing treatment, or even the thought of trauma therapy, and then obviously it being that relapsing condition, and with the drug supply so toxic, uh, there's just no margin of error. And um, without those supports in place, people will continue to relapse, use right. alone, and die because of it. Okay, I was wondering about the the existing laws in in British Columbia right now for mandatory treatment. Like I, I'm taking a look at the Mental Health Act this morning, and there are provisions in there for involuntary admission criteria under the Mental Health Act, including a deterioration or harm criteria. So you know, a doctor could recommend involuntary admission for for uh, someone if if they've got. Uh, physical deterioration or the person needs protection so like is it possible for for someone who's suffering from drug addiction under our current system in british columbia to be forced into any kind of like a mandatory treatment no uh no no and 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 it won't work if it's done it's just it's just transforming prison into uh associating treatment with a with the prison system uh and if you do that um, and force people into, into treatment, what's that going to look like for them? Like, I, I mean, listen, like, you know, when you go to prison, people sit there for years uh, and then get out, and it's that revolving door. What are we just going to do the revolving door of treatment every four months? And then if somebody does relapse because of the supplies so toxic they'll die because of it what we need is is really a system that's in place that doesn't try to you know force people i hey i'm all for people going to treatment we don't yeah. need mandatory treatment we need treatment on demand and there's a difference right, I mean, if right. somebody wants to access treatment immediately to go into a treatment rehab center then they should be able to have that uh, ability to access that service immediately you can't the wait lists kill people um, not only for that, people waiting to get safer drugs, they're dying because of it. Uh, and they're dying uh, when they relapse uh, from recovery okay. as well. So. Okay, so I'm glad to hear you make that distinction there about treatment on demand versus mandatory or compulsory treatment because, you know, you've got more expertise than me, Guy, but you know, I'm just thinking of this as like a parent. Like, like if a parent had a child who was addicted to drugs, what would they want for their child? Would they want a safe supply of drugs for their child, or would they want their child 
getting treatment and recovery to get them off of drugs. And I would think, like most parents would say, I, I want to rescue my child from this addiction. I want, I want my child to go into treatment. I want my child to go into recovery. Does that make sense to you? Oh, for sure. A hundred percent it does. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I deal with many parents uh, that come in and talk to me. And, and a lot of the times, too, what's often overlooked is, is that when kids are using, uh, using substances, uh, we just had a great success story of a, of a girl that I worked with with their family. It was a harm reduction approach, and, and I gave her options, including uh, recovery and treatment. And um, she wanted to go on the box, and she didn't want to. Uh, she wanted to try it that way so she could stay at home, and she did, and she just got her first job. Um, six months later, she got her first job, and her parents were telling me that she's a completely different person. So, I, I mean, there's different approaches. You have to you have to understand the individual, and like recovery is going to look different for a lot of uh, right. a lot of different people. So, right, I, like, I like like for for example, for yourself, guy, and your your own personal journey. Like you mentioned that you were addicted for a long time. You were homeless for a long time on the downtown east side. You're in and out of the criminal justice system. Uh, for you, the turning point for you was. I believe you said trauma therapy, right? Like, yeah. is that is that different from drug addiction treatment or recovery? Like, like how could you yeah. describe, what is trauma therapy? Well, trauma therapy is different various of therapies, like uh, um, rapid eye uh, therapy, which is uh, what I do on some sessions. Um, but the, the differences of substance use disorder or addiction is driven, like the main driver of it is childhood trauma or traumas. Um, so anybody that develops usually has some childhood issues. Um, and so going into treatment for four months, you haven't even scratched the surface of the traumas that you've endured for years. Uh, or this, and, and it's very challenging to also open up in, you know, group rooms with other people. You know, those facilities focus on, you know, changing some of your uh, behaviors of why you use drugs or give, try to give you skills to, to cope with it. But oftentimes for me, um, it just wasn't nearly enough. And if trauma uh, is the root causes of substance use disorder, then trauma therapy needs to be covered under MSP. And so people can have access to that. And I think what we need is more outpatient facilities where people can have access to trauma therapy counselors and go into a facility and then leave and then go back the next day or have a facility that's open like that. We just don't have those services anymore. All right, welcome back to the show. Should drug addiction treatment in B.C. be mandatory? 88% of Canadians support the idea, according to a new opinion poll. My guest is Guy Felicella. He's a harm reduction advocate. He overcame drug addiction in his own life. Let's go right to your phone calls. Dale in Aldergrove. Hi, Dale. Well, good morning, Mike. I always Hi. listen to your show. Great show. Uh, I was addicted to oxycodone, um, and then they started cutting back my, my uh, pills, and... Um, then I got on Suboxone, and it was yep. like night and day. And I'm uh, I'm off the oxycodone now, and I I feel great. I just don't understand why it's not used more. Okay, Dale, thank you for that. I'm glad to hear you've you've man- managed to make that change in your life, guy. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, it's great. It's great when uh, you know people try an option that works for them, like Suboxone. It works for a lot of people, and I'm glad yep. it worked for Dale, and it's great. Do you think that's widely enough available for people who want to get on like a substitution therapy like that? Yeah, oh, yeah, that's that's yeah. widely available. The, the challenge with it, though, is is that uh, you have to be in withdrawal to get it. That's the only drawback with it for a lot of people is that you have to go through suffering to get the medication 
then to feel better. And, and once, if you can get through that phase, yeah. uh, it's really beneficial. Let's go to Don on the open line in Vancouver. Hi, Don. Uh, hi, uh, Mike. Yeah, I, I recently got out of treatment, um, uh, basically saved my life, but it was really expensive. It, uh, $30,000 and I was fortunate enough to be able to afford it. Um, but, wow. um, I, I know that's not the case for so many people out there. And, uh, I was there in last September for 50 days, and it honestly, it saved my life. Um, so, um, wow. I don't know. I think we need to be doing more for people who can't afford it, and uh, it's a mental health issue. I was a broken, I was a broken human, and uh, I'm okay now. I'm doing well. I've got a strong aftercare program, and uh, it's all because of treatment. $40,000, huh? That's $30,000. $30,000. $30, wow. Don, yeah. Don, I'm glad to hear that, man. I'm glad to hear about your recovery. That's awesome. But is that typical cost, guy, in your experience? Yeah, for for private run treatment centers, yeah. about three three to five hundred dollars a day, which you oh. know is basically which is basically just healthcare for the rich. Let's go to Noah on the open line in Maple Ridge. Hi. Oh, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. I sure. I work in mental health as a psych nurse, and I and I we do have an, an element of of addiction in 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 our clientele. And I've seen um, both sides of it. I think there's some people who are well enough, who are able, and in their in the in the road to recovery, are able to go to like the Oak Clinic or one of these clinics and get on uh, on like a, something to help to um, with the withdrawals and to help them cut down, and then eventually go off the drugs and they get counseling. Yeah. But I think there's a certain element of people, and we would I would apply the same sort of rationale for the mental health act when somebody is so addicted and they're so traumatized and i agree there's a lot of trauma and with many many people and a lot of um sometimes overlapping psychosis from other from an actual illness that it's it's unrealistic for them to sort of wait for them to possibly be be able to get from pre-contemplative to contemplative and i think there's like san patriano's in italy has a program it's about 40 percent uh involuntary and 60 percent voluntary and so they, they do the same thing there. They have a recognition that not one size doesn't fit all that okay. way. There's, it depends. Thank you. Thank you, Noah, for that. Let's uh, squeeze in some more calls here. Steve and Tawasin, hi. Hey, how you doing? Uh, first of all, I just want to say congratulations to each of the callers, as well as yeah. the guy for, uh, for beating their addiction. I'm telling you, that is, uh, I mean, that is incredible. So congratulations. For sure. Uh, I'm in favor of, of uh, having people go into uh, treatment. Uh, over over going to uh, you know the prison system because you go in there and the power of association is so powerful that uh, you know people are led back into um, you know their lives before they they went so maybe we can use some of those resources that we would normally be using if we sent them off to a, a, a you know the bad place and put them into a good place and really surround them with good people and find out where the value is in their life and really help them achieve it and think about it all the time and provide okay. the support they need. Okay, yeah. Steve, thank you for that guy. What do you think about that treatment instead of prison? Well, I, I mean, if, if there's options, there, there has to be more than one option. Like, you have to give people options. Like, a lot of the times, too, there's the element of not being, you know, ready. I think what we need is treatment options, such as yeah. uh, people to access treatment, but also uh, treatment for uh, safer supply programs to uh, trauma therapy programs. I, I mean, you just, you, you can't just, we can't just force somebody to go into, I, I'm telling you, it just, it doesn't work. Um, 
it makes people dig in and and then they don't want then they hide their addiction they hide their use again and Mm. then you know we have more people using alone it'll create a system that's going to punish people for struggling um with substance use okay guy it's always great to have you on thank you for coming on today thanks for having me mike have a great day